All right. Excellent reading, Kim. Well done. What a story, huh? What a, what a, what a fantastic drama that really is. Well, I like to quote different Bible scholars. I've got one for you that's not really a Bible scholar, but Alfred Hitchcock. Okay? Alfred Hitchcock once said, revenge, revenge is sweet and not fattening. Revenge is sweet, not fattening. But like the statement, chocolate and lollies are sweet and not fattening. It's only half true, right? Revenge, friends, as we know, may be sweet in the moment, but it has bitter consequences. Have you experienced that? Today we come to another story in which David is faced with a temptation to take revenge, which kind of sounds like last week. Do you remember that? Saul in the cave, Saul in the tent. Except this morning it's a little bit different. You know, David was so gracious to King Saul when he had him right in his hand. Remember Saul comes into the cave, he's right there. And yet, with Nabal, did you see when Kim read He just, he blows up. He's ready to kill this guy. Protect the Lord's anointed. Approach him with respect. But this dude, Nabal, he's got to go. So what happens? What happened between chapter 24 and the chapter we're in now? Well, David's got a blind spot. But the way in which he doesn't have a blind spot is he's actually helped. He actually is given a gentle reminder by a godly woman. And then he learns a lesson. So that's where we're headed. First, a blind spot. Second, a gentle reminder. Third, a lesson learned. A blind spot, a gentle reminder, and a lesson learned. Let's look to the Lord and ask that he would bless his word now as it is preached. Heavenly Father, we know that this is the day that you made. And so we rejoice and we are glad in it, not because of necessarily even our circumstances, but because you are good and you are governing all things for your glory. We pray now that this would not be just a time to hear someone just sort of blabber on about whatever, but you would attune our hearts by your spirit and our minds, that each of us would hear from you. We ask these things in your mercy, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. So with the recent death of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, um, it was apparent, I don't know if you noticed this, particularly with social media, it was apparent that, that when she died and 
everything surrounding her funeral, that was not just a day of mourning for the Brits, for the Palmies, for the UK, but it was felt worldwide, right? All around the world. Everywhere around the globe, people appreciated uh, the queen. So news of her death was felt pretty much everywhere. At least everywhere that has, most people, I mean, there's probably a few tribes in the Amazon that didn't hear about it, but you'd be surprised, most people around the world wouldn't be unaware of that, right? And most people would have streamed in live stream for her funeral, or at least watched it after the fact. Now contrast that with the very first statement in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Contrast that with 1 Samuel 25. Ready? See it there? Now Samuel died. Now Samuel died. Just stop and consider the fact that this particular book that we have been studying in the Bible is named after no other than Samuel. That's right. This man was very significant, right, because of his, his influence and, and, and his direction. I mean, remember, he's the kingmaker. Do you remember how the whole book opens? It opens with his mom praying that she would receive a child, and she does, and that's Samuel. And you know Samuel. I mean, he's sort of Saul's, you know, worst nightmare in a lot of ways. I mean, this guy played such a critical role. He's the kingmaker. But now, in just 20 words, we get his obituary. Just 20 words. It's short. Wish we had more. You know, you wonder, did Saul attend his funeral? I don't know, but, but look, it's, it's short. Samuel died. You see it? Israel assembled. They mourned. And they buried him. There it is. Samuel's death, though, would have been felt everywhere. I mean, we, we've got just quick 20 words on it, but everyone would have felt it. Yet at the same time, it raises an important question. How's the nation of Israel going to behave? How are people going to act? You ever notice when someone significant dies that carries a lot of weight, maybe in your family, maybe it's a matriarch, grandma, and she feels like she's kind of holding the family together. And when she dies, you go, oh, gee, I feel like everything's going to go pear shape in the family now. Or maybe you even feel that way with a generation. Frankly, I worry when the builder generation goes by, no offense, boomers, you're okay, but I love the builder generation, the World War II generation, because I feel like these people just are stalwart, right? The millennials are hopeless, okay? And so I being one of them and whatever is under me, I, I don't even remember. But you feel that when these people are, are passing on, right? What's, what's going to happen now? How are people going to act? How are people going to behave? And with such a key figure like Samuel, how, without him around and him on the scene, how, how is David going to, I mean, he's been dodging spears and running. Remember where, he, where did he bolt to when Saul was after him, he, he ran to Samuel, right? And, and so how's he going to behave now? What's going to go on now? How's he going to act now that this spiritual giant in his life is, is gone? Well, that's answered in the rest of the chapter. As he, is, and as he and his comrades head down into the wilderness of Paran, 
As we get into this next scene here, we're introduced to the cast of characters, and, and they're quite colorful, let me tell you. This cast of characters, the first guy that we see is, is a man, and he is loaded. He's a wealthy man, very rich, and like most rich blokes these days, he has a beautiful wife, right? But she's not only physically attractive, right? She is highly intelligent. Now, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, I wonder if you've noticed a common method that the author uses to get a point across. It's this use of contrast. Contrast. The book of Samuel seems to be in the habit, really enjoys contrasting characters. Have you noticed that? Let's see if you can pick it up in verses 2 through 3. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. The name of his wife Abigail. Very interesting there. Nabal means fool. <laughs> I don't think that's the name his mom gave him. What do you want to name your child? You know, Nabal, fool. Right? That's likely indicative of his character. Sort of a deserved nickname, if you want. Whereas, notice his wife, Abigail, is... Chalk and cheese different. She has good sense and good looks, right? Notice here. Verse 3 again. Now the name of the man was Fool, Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now the contrast between these two couldn't be more stark, Right? Nabal, fool, he is brash and brutish. Abigail, bright and beautiful. You catching it? Sort of beauty and the beast. So did you notice when I read there as well that they, Nabal has, he's got stocks and bonds coming out of his ears, right? I mean, the guy's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He owns Twitter. Right? I mean, the guy's got all kinds of money. Now, that's heaps. But who do you suppose, if you think about all those animals, who looked after those animals? Well, not him. You hire people. I mean, come on. You hire people to do that kind of stuff. But in those days, if you lived outside the walls of a fortified city, you with me? Which is, they're out in the wilderness. In those days, if you lived outside the walls of a fortified city, you'd be extremely vulnerable to bandits, to thieves, to robbers. You see, out in the bush, thieves regularly preyed upon travelers, ready to mug anyone who showed promise of having a full handbag. Do you remember one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the Good Samaritan? Remember that? What's it about? There's this traveler, and where is he? He's 
going through the Judean wilderness. Who, and what does he do? He, he encounters some, some thugs, some bandits, who mug him, beat him, leave him for dead. But then finally he's rescued by a good Samaritan. The point is, Nabal's herdsmen, these guys, these, they're caring for the flocks, would have been a prime target, would have been a key target for these bandits, these outlaws. They would have been a key target. Unless, of course, unless, of course, they have, oh, I don't know, some protection. Maybe like, I don't know, 600 rough guys guarding them day and night with swords. Would that help? Yes, and that's exactly what they had. You see? You can imagine David's company forming kind of an unofficial neighborhood watch group, right? 24-hour security guards. You've got these ruthless outlaws roaming the canyons and mesas, but then David arrives bringing law and order. Later in the story, if drop down to verse 15, that's precisely what one of these shepherds testifies about. One of the herdsmen, look at verse 15. He says, uh, the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. See, David and his men provided protection, which, think about it, if they're providing protection for this long time, that would have made Nabal even more wealthy because he wouldn't have lost anything, right? And then finally, after all this protecting and 24-hour security, it's the holiday season. You with me? Just can see if you're awake. So whoop-dee-doo. Okay, holiday season rolls around. Come on, guys, you can look a little bit more enthusiastic, you know. I know it's the coast, but come on. The holiday seasons roll around, and it's sheep shearing time. That's, that's what that is. Basically, as the year's harvest of wool was gathered, banqueting tables were loaded down with food and drinks, and the long, hard hours of shearing the sheep now climaxed in a grand celebration. And David hears about this, so what does he do? Well, it's sheep shearing time. It's the holiday season. So he, he, he sends 10 blokes with a message. It's very, you know, very polite message. He goes to Nabal and he says, shalom, shalom, shalom. Peace, peace, peace. Three times, right? He wishes him long life and good health, but then gives him oh, just, just, just a friendly, friendly reminder that They've been watching after his sheep for all of the while for free. So he gently asks, if there's anything left after the party, would you be so kind as to pass some of that along? Pretty reasonable request, would you agree? Fair enough. Given they've been protecting these guys, look, come, come to verse 8. Ask your young men, and they will tell you, therefore, let my young men, this is David's message of all, find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. There it is. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, 
And then they waited. So you see what they're saying? Look, in, in, light of, in light of everything we've done, as a token of your appreciation, we're not asking for everything, but just when the party's done, would you give us you know, some to-go bags and help us out? I mean, after all, Mr. Scrooge, it's Christmas Eve, right? I mean, if, if it's a holiday season, you, you'd expect to catch Nabal in somewhat in a cheerful mood. Maybe he's kind of giving. Well, how does this fool respond? Who does David think he is? This is, this is unbelievable here. L- look at verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? He would have known who David is. Even the Philistines knew who David was. Remember, David has slain, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his what? His tens of thousands, right? That was on Spotify. Everyone knew about David. He was a hero. Everyone knew, friend and foe, who this guy was. So who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? He's starting to sound like Saul a bit, isn't he? Saul had his 3,000 men. He's got his 3,000 sheep. You know, it's this is sort of Saul's alter ego in a sense, isn't it? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I, I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come, I don't know where. Wow. You see that there? He just scoffs at them. And what does he do? He really scoffs at David's significance and implies that he and his troops are nothing more than a band of rogue, renegade slaves who've broken away from their masters. He not only refused them food, he insulted them and screams and yells at them. Now, when David sees his men coming back empty-handed, then here's the insult. We're used to seeing David dodging spears hiding in caves, having opportunity to kill people. And now we're going to get to see a dark side of David, a side that, well, frankly, we haven't seen yet. He just explodes. He just, he just loses his cool. Look at verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So when these men come back and they report this to David, he's incensed. And he's determined to bring revenge. What does he do, right? He, he musters two-thirds of his troops to attack Nabal and leaves the rest to watch after the supplies. He's absolutely furious. So you'd imagine... The next scene's going to be, I mean, this guy's a farmer, right? Maybe he's got a couple guys to protect him. How, do, how well is it going to fare against 400 rough, remember these guys that are surrounding themselves around David, they're not just, you know, these aren't white collar guys, right? You know, these aren't just like, you know, prissy boys. The, the, these are rough dudes who've probably killed people themselves. And they're like, Finally, we've been waiting for this day, right? You've been just copping it on the chin. Let's go. And they've got murder on their minds. How do you think it's going to go for Nabal? No, it's going to be slaughter, right? And in fact, look what's going through David's mind in verse 21. 
Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. He's cross, right? But hold on, hold on. Isn't this the same David who refused refused to take revenge against the Lord's anointed? But now it appears that he's got a blind spot. So who's going to help him? Who's going to set him on track? Not Samuel. He's dead. Jonathan appears to be off doing something else. Who's going to help him? Who's going to point him to God? Realign his thinking? Reset his apparatus? While the next scene, you can almost imagine happening in slow motion here. Right? Here are these 400 men charging down this ravine, armed with swords, with murder on their minds, when suddenly they're stopped in their tracks by 400 other men. No. By one woman with some groceries. That's it. Look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. So you see, this is amazing. Here is one lady with some groceries at the bottom of a ravine with David and his men bearing down towards her. Yet Abigail doesn't appear, she might have been afraid, I mean, rightly so, but she doesn't seem intimidated. Right now, what's driving her is her husband's life. Her husband's life is at risk, as well as all the rest of the men. So what does she do? She does what Nabal couldn't do, or at least refused to do, and did not do. She humbles herself. And not only that, what are her first words? Did you see it there? It's my fault. Blame me. It's me you should be angry with. Abigail is acting as an advocate, as, as a mediator. Come again to verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. You see how she diffuses things there? Look, David, my husband's a fool. I can't let him out of the house, right? Can't let this guy alone. Don't listen to him. Just ignore him. When your men showed up, I'm really sorry that I wasn't there. Had I been there, I would have given you more than what you would have asked for. But I wasn't, and I'm sorry. And... I'm really sorry that my husband has behaved the way that he has. It's amazing, isn't it? As she's putting herself in harm's way to save her rotten husband's life. I mean, think about this. 
from what we've learned about Nabal so far, you reckon that'd be an easy guy to be married to? <laughs> no way. So what she could have done is, when she gets the report from one of the herdsmen that says, hey, David's coming with 400 men, and he is determined, dead set on killing Nabal. She could have said, ooh, Oh, hold on. David's going to kill Nabal. I like that. <laughs> Let me pray about what to do here. We'll wait till the morning, and we'll see what will happen. And if she had done that, David would have come and slaughtered all, all those guys. Nabal would be dead, right? But she's a loyal wife. And what is she driven by? She knows her God. She knows what the Lord is doing in the nation of Israel, who the real king is, and she leaves vengeance up to God. You know, I, I know from meeting with several of you, many of you have been extremely mistreated. You've been extremely mistreated by people. Friend, know that vengeance is the Lord's. Abigail had an absolute rotten husband. And this could have been an easy opportunity for her to just turn a blind eye. But yet she sees David's blind eye. And she's most concerned to save her husband and to reorient David. Proverbs 12 says this, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. So she shields her rotten husband and also does something even more fascinating in verse 26. She starts lecturing David. Remember, they're not sitting in a library or in a cafe. David is keen to just vent his anger. And they're there in a ravine with donkeys and food behind her. Verse 26, notice here. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from sa saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. Isn't that amazing? It's just, she's politically aware there. Did you catch that? She knows who the real king is. By the way, it's not that you know, Nabal would have known. Who's this son of Jesse? How would she know all of this information? Right? I mean, Nabal knew exactly who this guy was. That's why she comes, that's, that's why Abigail comes to David and says, I want you, I want to, David, I want to stop you from doing something that you'll regret. If you go and massacre those men, you would begin your reign in blood. And, and you couldn't cope with that in your conscience. To start your office with that kind of press is not good. And, and you'll be glad that I came to stop you. 
And notice, I love the image that she uses. Notice the image. Do you see this in verse 29? It's the image of hurling a stone from a sling. You think that's coincidence? You know, she says that God, listen, God will ultimately deal with your enemies. You know that, dear friend? People that have wronged you, God will deal with it. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The Lord will bring judgment. Payday will come someday. Look at verse 29, though. It's a great image. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as a, from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. You know what she does for him there? It's what the Bible says that we're to do for each other in Galatians 6. Galatians 6 tells us that if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what Abigail is doing for David. She reminds him that the Lord will make him a lasting dynasty because why? He fights God's battles, not his own. You know, there's an, there's an interesting way that people like to present art pieces. Um, and some of you might have seen this before. Have you seen art pieces that look like this? I believe it's called triptych or something like that. Yeah. Uh, now, I want you to think about where we were last week and where we are now. So the context of chapter... So picture this. Chapter 25 is in the middle. Can you see that? Chapter 24 to the left, chapter 26 to the right. The context of chapter 25 is surrounded by two stories of David refusing to take revenge. Are you with me? What he learned... Here, in 25, he later applies in verse 26. So 24, he learns the lesson in 25, and then when he's in the tent, he applies it. One commentator put it this way. He said, the present story, this one that we're looking at, is sandwiched between two episodes, 24 and 26, which tell how David spared Saul when he had a chance to kill him. It deals with the same issue whether vengeance will be David's or the Lord's. In the last chapter, David desired the Lord to avenge him against Saul. In this chapter, God avenges him speedily. In the next chapter, perhaps having learned from this event, David is much more specific that God will somehow avenge him. Taking his own vengeance would make him unfit to carry out God's mission for him. So when you think, I'm trying to help pull us up here to see bigger pictures in Samuel. You can go to the next one too. I don't want to, um, you get the idea. Yeah, so, so like this is, oh, I won't sit here and get out of that art piece because I'm gonna get distracted with it. 
Um, I'm, thanks, Rob. I'm, I'm actually serious. I'm going to get distracted. Yeah, thank you. Um, you, you, when, you think of, when you think of Samuel now, friends, think 24, 25 was where he learned this lesson. 26 is where he applies it, right? I wonder in season of your life, where are you at? Are you back here? Have you ever actually learned to, take, to actually leave vengeance to God? Or are you still back here? Or are you struggling in this season, in this space right now in your life? Where are you at, I wonder? We're all, we're, there's, I don't know, what, 50 of us in this room or whatever? We're, I mean, certainly all of us, those of us that are following Christ, we're going to be in different places, right? Maybe you've sort of walked through this several times. But, you know, one of the things that you see is God's providential hand over David. Don't, don't just leave this with David. The, the people, that, the rat bags that are in your life, you can try to avoid them all you want, but God's just going to put another one, sandpaper, in your life because he loves you and he cares for you and, and he's going to sand you down, right? If you don't have any, you come... No, I won't say anything. No, but um, look, you, you get the idea though, right? 24, 25, 26. Now, look how David responds. Come back to this passage here in, 20, in chapter 25. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who kept me from this day from blood guilt and from working salvation, notice, with my own hand. With my own hand. For as surely as the Lord lives, the God of Israel lives, who restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly by morning, there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. Again, he wasn't messing around, right? Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go in peace to your house. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember how they approached Nabal? Peace, peace, peace. And now she receives that peace because she's a peacemaker. She comes as this ambassador, right? Go to your house in peace. I've obeyed your voice and I've granted your petition. Now this next scene is, is just, it, it's just so striking. Here we have the king tempted to be a fool. And this next scene, we have the fool attempting and acting like a king. I just find that really interesting. Notice verse 38. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning. So she comes back. Little does he know, as he's sitting there, with all his kegs and everything, you know, Drunk as a skunk, having a great time, acting like he's a king. Little does he know, like, this would have all, like, talk about party poopers. These guys would have come in and just killed everybody. And yet, he's just having a great time. Who knows? Who knows how faithful he was to Abigail, how he treated her? Probably, it doesn't sound like, I think the way the Bible describes him, he's not a great guy. Could be quite abusive. We don't, we don't know. So she, she, she comes back, and she's like, you know what? I'll just wait to tell him. I'll, I'll wait to tell him. So in the morning, when he sobers up, had his coffee, she goes, you know, there was 400 men coming here yesterday. They were coming to kill you. 
but I deterred them, reminding their leader of who he is, who God is. It's just fascinating. Look here. So she told them nothing all until the morning. Verse 37. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. I don't think he, I don't, I think he's just that stingy. Do you really think that he's like, they were coming to kill me? <gasps> no. I think it's the fact that she loaded those donkeys and he lost at least just that much. Remember the way he talked to David? Why should I give my water, my bread, my food? I mean, he, he couldn't even just give just a, a small amount and yet he's gorging himself, right, when he come, she comes back to this party. And so his heart dies within him and he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And then when David hears about this, he rejoices. He comes and has Abigail as his wife. Now, part of that could be for protection, by the way. I mean, uh, they didn't have government subsidies and programs for widows back then. And so if you're Abigail and you have, people are going to start to blame you for killing Nabal, right? Dragon with me. Your family, you're going ha to have her whacked. You're going to kill her. Or what if some of, you know, remember how insane King Saul is? What if some of his loyal followers hear about your alliance with David? I mean, it's going to be quite dangerous. Yeah, whatever the case, I mean, she is a Proverbs 31 woman. David sees that, and he, and he marries her. Now, what do we take away from this? Well, we can take away that, that we can be sure that God will make fools, make sure that fools face payday for their evil deeds someday. See, the temptation to take revenge comes to us in a lot of ways. We may not, at least I hope not, you're rallying 400 people to go kill that person that's difficult in your life. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have evil thoughts in your heart, do you remember this? You've already murdered that person in your heart. You see, the Lord looks on your heart. He sees exactly what's going on. See, the temptation to take revenge may not come with a sword, but it comes with gossip comes with slander, or in the, it comes in the form of withholding forgiveness. We want that person to pay. Some of, some of you ladies in here that I've counseled, and some of your husbands are deceased, you've had balls of husbands. I know that. Have you, have you been able, have you come to the place where you can truly forgive them? Some of your husbands, like Nabal, they're, they're dead. They're gone. There's nothing you can do.
except forgive him. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Honestly. But have you come to the place where you've been able to actually, because of Christ working in you, forgive them for the hurt that they've caused you? You know, when we're tempted, what do we learn? You know, my grandpa told me, when you, someone pushes you, you push him back, right? Someone insults you, you insult them back. And the Lord says, no. That's not how we're to respond as Christians. That's not the way the Lord responded, is it? God protected David, didn't he? By sending an Abigail. You know, thank God for good Abigails in our life. I thank God for my precious Abigail, April. And what, you're like, Abigail? No. My precious, you know. How many times I would have charged down and done something stupid and she has to jump in the fray and say, pull your head in. <laughs> what are you thinking? She does it gently though. She's, she's a dear sister to me. And some of you may not have a spouse, but you have Abigail-like figures in your life. People to point you to God. People to remind you of who you are. And you know, God protects you from vengeance by sending Christ. You know, we talked about this last week. Jesus left the perfect example. But he also, let, he also gives us a means of escape that we can look to him. I mean, talk about competent. Talk about a guy who never did any wrong. And then they killed him. Jesus left you an example and also a means of escape. John Stott put it this way. He said, the essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God. The essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God. Do you ever think about that? I mean, when you're ready to snap back at someone, to gossip, to slander them, why are you doing that? Because you've been wronged and it's not fair. Believe me, I get it. But you don't, that's God's job. That's his job description. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not your job. So when you do that, instead of letting the Lord drive the car, you're pushing him out of the driver's seat and you say, no, 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 you don't understand how bad this person hurt me. I got this. You yank it the other way. You see? The essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God. The essence, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for human beings. See the difference? We need a substitute who never took revenge, who never sinned, substituting himself, vicariously dying in our place because we're like sheep. We're like those sheep wandering around in the wilderness that David's men were looking after. We've all gone astray. 
Every one of us in this room has turned to their own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. The essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for human beings. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you again for your word that cuts like a knife and is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that the words that were spoken here would be sealed in our hearts. We ask that, Lord, you would do a good work in our in the way that we approach people that have wronged us. Like David, may we learn, even as we've been processing these things this morning, not to take revenge. So the next time we're faced with it, because Lord, we know David's going to be faced with it in the very next chapter. And yet, here he is learning by your grace. Lord, we pray that we would do so now. We know that no temptation has seized us except what is common to all of us. And you are faithful. You will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we're tempted, you will also provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. So Lord, help us to trust that vengeance is yours. Payday will come. But Lord, we want you. We know that we're guilty. We know that we have sinned. And so we look to you now our great shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We cast all of those sins and all those ways that we have pushed back and, and sinned against others. Lord, we, we throw them now on you, our sin bearer. In Christ's name, amen.